Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. On our Sunday morning messages, we've been in the book of Galatians, chapter 1 still, and this morning we're looking at verses 10 through 17. We read these verses in our service here a few minutes ago, and I titled this A Picture of Conversion because here Paul uh, gives an account of his own salvation and the conversion that came to him and kind of how that happened. It's not the only place, of course, that he says such a thing, but he does it here in our book. You know, all of us who are believers can have or do have a mental picture of our conversion. We can kind of just go back to that time when we got saved. We remember when or where, maybe not a date on a calendar or time on a clock, but I mean, we know that we came to Christ by faith uh, there or a certain way at that time, and uh, we have that in our minds. I, I was 11 years old, so, uh, you know, it's just yesterday that I remember, remember these things, and yet still to this day, I could take you to the spot. I could, I could describe it to you where I was sitting in the... It was during an invitation where I was sitting and everything, uh, because th this is the biggest thing that happens to us in our lives. So we remember it. And, and because it happens to you, it happened to me, you know, I have always been confident that that can happen to someone else too. That if they heard the gospel and, and they were convicted of their sin, they could do the same thing. And I remember when I was just a teenager then and and uh, though I got saved at 11, we didn't really start going to a gospel-preaching church until later when I was uh, almost 16. And I got so excited about the gospel and, and telling others about it, it was, uh, I was ice skating with a bunch of kids on a pond. This is in Ohio on the, on the campus of Miami University where they had a lot of these ponds and they're lighted up at night and so forth. And we're all skating out there. And this friend of mine, I witnessed to him, and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. But his younger brother, who was a friend of my younger brother, uh, was listening. And when I asked him if he wanted to be saved, he said, yes. And uh, we ended up kneeling down in a snowbank at the, at the side of that pond, and he uh, asked the Lord to, to save him. And you know, the other just a couple weeks ago, he contacted me on Facebook after all these years. And so, uh, you know, I think that's what we see in Paul here in Acts chapter 1, where uh, he just says, he, you know, as soon as he got saved, he was blind for three days, and when God took the uh, gave him his sight back, he was already out in the street witnessing and telling everybody he could. As a matter of fact, the persecutor all of a sudden became the persecuted uh, because uh, when you start preaching this gospel, there are many who don't want to hear it. So here he was in Damascus uh, when he got saved, Acts chapter 9. He goes into Arabia, which he mentions in our text in verse 17, comes back to Damascus preaching, and yet they they turn against him to such a degree that he literally has to be helped out of town, let down you know, the wall in a basket and escaped uh, for his life. Well, I just think that, that uh, we ought to understand what conversion is and we ought to be able to tell it to others. The word conversion, by the way, convert, comes from a word which means to turn. So epistrophe in that language, strophe means to turn 
Uh, and epa means to turn from something or turn to something. So listen, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, where Paul is writing to that church, he says, They themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And then he says, How you turned to God from idols to, to serve uh, the living and true God. You turn from your sin and you turn to God. That's conversion, to turn from something and to turn to something. When he met with the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, coming down from Antioch all the way down to Jerusalem, it says, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, and it says, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, the turning of the Gentiles, and that caused great joy among the brethren. So wherever Paul went, he was talking about this conversion and what it could do for you or anyone else. So I want us to think about Paul's conversion as he talks about it here, but also notice in my notes that you have there in your bulletin or on the screen that I'm kind of putting this in the first person here or in the plural anyway, our, our faith, my faith, and what my past was, and then you know, what uh, happened when I got converted. I want you to kind of think about it in personal terms because though the circumstance was a little different and Paul was different than you and that was a different part of the world and a totally different time, of course, the same thing happened to you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. I think it's encouraging to look at it uh, that way. So in our text, um, Galatians chapter 1, when we looked at verses 6 through 9, he was taught, he, you see the word you there. He's talking to the church now. He's saying, you people, this is, this is what has happened to you. The false teachers have come in, and you have followed them. And so he's directing those thoughts there. But when he gets to verse 10, notice I, he talks about, and what happened to me, and these kinds of things, all the way down through verse 17, which is our text for today. So first of all, in the first three verses, 10 through 12, I want to talk about my faith, or I'm talking about Paul's faith in such a case. And notice, and we read these verses a minute ago, about pleasing man or pleasing God. Is, does our faith come from human beings, or does it come from God? Verse 10, do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be the servant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, not after man. Notice two words in verse 10, the word persuade and the, and the word please. It's kind of a unique question to ask. Well, who do you persuade and who do you please? He says, I persuade men. I don't try to persuade God. I can't persuade God. But I try to please God, and I don't worry about pleasing men if I'm pleasing God. And so he uses this word persuade. Maybe some people are a little shy about the idea of persuading somebody to believe. But, you know, I find Paul doing it very often, and he's saying it here. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He's talking there about the Bema Seat of Christ. And about when you die, where you're going to go. And he says, knowing therefore the terror, though the word is phobos, fear, we persuade. 
And you remember when he met before Agrippa, King Agrippa in Acts 26? Agrippa says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I mean, I'm almost persuaded by your talk, Paul. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether as I am, except for these chains. I, I hope you do become a Christian. So who do, we, who do we persuade? We persuade people. We don't persuade God. And you know, as I think about that, folks, I think a lot of people are just the opposite. A lot of people in religious circles these days. We, we try to persuade God to make our Christianity a little more like we like it. You know, well, I just think it should be this way, and, and God, I'm sure you'll have, you'll have grace with me and let me do it that way. You'll let me say it the way I want to say it. And you're, and you're pleasing yourself or pleasing people and persuading God in order to do it. Paul says, I can't do that, and I never do that. I've got to persuade men. And then he says, do I please men? And the answer there is no, I don't. I try to please God, right? So listen to 1 Thessalonians 2.4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. And then he says, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. That's our number one priority. What does God want from us? What does God want us to say? How does he want us to say it? In 1 Thessalonians 4.1, then he says, Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exalt you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. That's what I've talked to you about, he says, is how to please God. And so don't turn that around. <laughs> don't try to persuade God so that you can please men, but rather please God and persuade men. That's what he's saying to us. Now, I did have this thought, you know, do we ever please people? Because there's a statement like this by the Apostle Paul. I want to read it to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 33 says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. And in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, in, in chapter 9, is where he says, I've become all things to all men. So what does he mean there when he says that uh, uh, I also please all men? Obviously, he's not contradicting himself, or, or the Holy Spirit would be doing that. But rather, I think what he's saying is, I seek every opportunity I can to give the gospel. And so do you try to make an enemy out of your neighbor or do you try to make a friend out of your neighbor? And why, and why do you try to make a friend out of them? So that the door of the gospel might be open sometime. Why, why do you try to be friendly to people or try to get along with people? You're not pleasing men over God. You're simply trying to give the, the door of the gospel open uh, to them. And so the offense, folks of the cross is something we can't help. But let's not be the offensive one. We shouldn't be offensive in what we do, in our manner and our speaking and, and deportment and so forth. But when we speak of the cross of Christ, it will be offensive. It will be offensive to people. And that's partly what this book of Galatians is about. Matter of fact, if you turn to your right, 
to chapter 5 and verse 11, he will say this, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, that is, the law, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. If I go along with you and your old Judaism, everyone will love it. I'll please everybody. But if I preach the cross as God tells me to preach it, it's going to be offensive to some people. He'll say the same thing in chapter 6, verse 14. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. And so why is it that the cross is offensive? Because it tells you you must repent. It tells you that Jesus had to die in your place. You couldn't have done it. You can't work your way to heaven. God doesn't need your good works. He doesn't accept uh, good works from you. He saves you by his grace with no effort of your own. And that's offensive to people. People want to say, well, God has a great thing when he gets me. You know, when I become a believer, uh, the Lord will be so happy. The angels will rejoice in heaven because I'm such a wonderful person. Now, the reason the angels rejoice in heaven is because it would have been impossible for you to get saved without the grace of God, but you did. So the offense of the cross is there. Now, secondly, notice in verses 11 and 12, speaking of our faith, it not only pleases God and not men, but it's of God. Our faith comes from God. So let's read those verses in verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man or, or from man or after man, you might have. The gospel didn't come by human beings. The gospel wasn't invented by some man sometime. He's a lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God planned this for our sakes. Verse 12, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but, but, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice those three things here in this text. It's not according to human beings. It wasn't received from human beings. And I wasn't taught it by human beings. It's all from God. And remember what Paul is doing in this book. He is saying to these Jewish people who have their religion and they have turned the Old Testament text into, a, in, into this uh, legalistic religion and they are saying, I'm saved because uh, I'm a child of Abraham. It comes from him. And he's saying, no, you're not that way. So it's not according, it's not according to, you have in verse 11, to man. Man didn't create it. It's only by God's grace. Secondly, he did not receive it from men. I suppose there might have been an accusation about Paul. You know, here, here he is, this upstart apostle. Now, we know Peter. We know John, James. We know all of them. But this guy from Tarsus, this guy who comes along and he used to persecute the church and all the rest, and now he's saying he's an apostle and has, has all of this authority? Someone might have said, nah, Barnabas got to him, and Barnabas talked to him. Or, you know, when he was blind, uh, that Ananias came to him, and they had a conversation. Or maybe even they're saying, uh, maybe he's following those apostles, and, and uh, you know what they're preaching. They're preaching that, that faith stuff and that grace stuff. Who knows? 
what they meant by this. But he said, I didn't receive it from, from uh, any of those people. As a matter of fact, what, what happened on that road to Damascus? I mean, out of nowhere, Jesus appears and Paul uh, is flat on the ground and he hears the voice saying, and we're going to go to it and read it in a minute, you know, I'm the one you're persecuting. And he heard it from them. And then he's going to say down at the end of our text, then he goes into Arabia where no other person is, and God teaches them there these things. So he didn't receive it from men. Now, if you try this, you will receive it from man, not God. But you're not a prophet and you're not an apostle. And these men received their revelation from God. And he says, I wasn't taught it by any other man. He, he was a student of Gamaliel, the greatest Jewish teacher of the day. He sat at the feet of that great teacher. He knew all the scribes. He knew the priests. He knew everyone like that. Did they teach him this? No, not at all. They're the ones angry at him because of all of this. But notice how he concludes this in verse 12. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is apocalypse. We have, we have a book in the Bible called, you know, named Revelation. It's the apocalypse. That's how I received it. These men, like Paul, like Peter, like John, like any of the Bible writers, God reveals his truth to them and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit lets them write it down so they have it in an infallible record. Romans 3.21 but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. You know these verses. As it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. How do we know about them? But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. That's how we know them. And one more, Colossians 1.26 says, The mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. He's speaking there, of course, about the New Testament and the revelation that did come through the apostles. And again, you remember that Damascus Road, who was talking to him? The soldiers? No. An apostle? No. Jesus himself was talking to him. And you know, folks, I thought about that this morning, and I thought, I have that in my hand. I have the gospel that was revealed from, from heaven. I have the truth of God about the history of things, about the gospel, about the life of Christ, about the future things. I have it in my hand. I even thought in our last hour in our Sunday school class, I know whether you were here in the auditorium or you were with us over in the Fellowship Hall, and, and you know, we're, we're studying a certain text in the Bible, and, and the teacher says, now let's read this, and everyone opens a Bible, and it lays open, and all of a sudden, everybody's eyes go down to the Word, and you're reading it. When Don read the text a few minutes ago, he comes up here, he says, turn here to Galatians 1, we, all of our eyes go down in our Word. You know, that's a wonderful thing when you think about it. We're reading the Revelation. And boy, when, when we say to one another, let's read what God says, to us believers, we take that seriously. It's the same thing, really, when we pray, isn't it? Because there the Holy Spirit 
is helping us, and we're talking to God the Father, and heads go down and eyes go closed, and, and we become very serious at that moment because these are things of God. And I think that's kind of what Paul is saying here. Not, not for man, not to please him. It didn't come from them. This is God's revelation that he gave to me that I'm giving to you. And they, they had to take that very seriously, and I think that they did. Remember Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is, in the old version, quick and powerful, living and powerful. The word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a revealer of things we wouldn't otherwise know. The word of God is that way. So, my faith doesn't please man, it pleases God. It didn't come from man, it comes from God. Secondly, Paul's going to take a couple verses here. We, we have verses in our Bible now. They didn't have verses back then, but we refer to them that way. In verses 13 and 14, to talk about his past. I have a past before I got saved. Do you? And I was only 11 years old. I must have been a wicked kid to have a past by the time I was 11 years old. Uh, but the fact is, I was a sinner as if I were 111 years old. I needed to be saved. And had I not been saved, I really would have had a far worse past than even that. So notice in verse 13, you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. <laughs> I know you know me. I know you know what I did. I know that, that you know what a, what a terrible, wicked person, although I was your hero, wasn't I? I persecuted those Christians, didn't I? And you were really happy about it, weren't you? You know my former conduct. Notice my two thoughts here from 13 and 14. On the one hand, he's going to say, I was as anti-Christian as anybody, and you loved it. Not only that, but I was very pro-religion. Our Judaism, our religion, I, was, I, I loved it, and I lived it, and I defended it, and so forth. So notice, notice these two things. First of all, he was anti-Christian, yes how I persecuted this church of God. They knew what the church was by that time. How I persecuted it, and I did it beyond measure. I tried to destroy it. Philippians 3.6, and, and he does this in other places in his writing. He said, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. I mean, he did it with zeal. He's as if he's doing God a favor. Every Christian that he, can, that he can persecute, throw in jail, and as with Stephen, even see them stoned. Boy, I did it with zeal. Notice then, as you, as you look at, the, at this verse, the word persecuted and the word destroyed. You see those two? So I persecuted it. That word is a very common word. It often is translated persecution or trials or so, so forth. This word dioko is a, is a hunter's term, a hunting term. If, if you are tracking an animal in order to kill that animal, maybe it's a deer, maybe it's some kind of a, you know, other animal, you're tracking it, you're pursuing it. That's what it means. This word means to follow after and pursue. 
And so you're on that trail, and that animal's trying to get away, but, boy, you're following it, and you're following the tracks, and you're going to do that until you get it and kill it. That's why this, this kind of a word is used by those who would be hunting something. And so he's doing that. Now, now hold your place at that point and go back to Acts chapter 9, okay? Because uh, it's not that hard to find. To your left a little ways, Acts chapter 9. And let me, let me read just the first five verses to you of Acts chapter 9 as we think about this persecutor of the church. Remember that his name was Saul at that time, Saul of Tarsus. So Acts 9.1 says, Then Saul, notice, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of that way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I'm going to go get more of them, and I'm going to imprison them with zeal, you know. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Suddenly a light shone uh, around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you, what's the Lord's word, persecuting me? Why are you persecuting? And, and wouldn't he say, I don't even know who you are. I never persecuted you. When you touch the body of Christ, you touch the head. When you touch the body of the church, you touch the head of the church. And Jesus is saying in here, you're persecuting me. This is my church. These are my people. And he said, here's the kind of the unbelieving question. Who are you, Lord? Before you got saved, before you came to the Lord, you didn't know him personally. You had to ask, well, what about this one? What did he do for me? Who was he? What did he do? Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He says it again. Hard for you to kick against the goads, the pricks. The goad stick was what a, a little cart driver would use to poke at the donkey or the horse in front of him to get him going. And uh, I was reading the other night how uh, the, the Jews in the Old Testament didn't have any weapons and they had to take their goads to the Philippines to have them sharpen it. <laughs> so you had a good sharp goad uh, to use when you're farming. And what he's saying is when you kick against the gospel, when you try to persecute the church of God, the Holy Spirit is after you. And your conscience is after you. And you know that this is the conviction of your sin. And you, you are doing it anyway, even though the Holy Spirit is goading you along. Hard to kick against that, isn't it? And so he, trembling and astonished, said, now here's a believing question. What do you want me to do? You know, it's one thing to say, who are you? It's another thing to say, well, then what should I do? And, of course, he's getting direct revelation at this point. Maybe with you it was. Somebody said, well, let me read to you what the Bible says about sin and salvation. Let me take you down the Romans road. Let me, let me explain what or how you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so you have the story that goes on from there. Back to, back to Galatians 1. So, so what I'm saying here is he was persecuting it, and secondly... He sought to destroy it. We're in verse 13. To destroy it. 
I want you to notice uh, to the, one of the last verses in the chapter, uh, verse 23, and notice these two words. But they were hearing only, that is, you know, after he got saved and all these people who really knew him, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. So here he is saying, when I was lost, I persecuted the church and I tried to destroy it. He gets saved, his testimony is changing, and now everybody looks at him and says, aren't you the one that tried to, destroy, to uh, persecute and destroy? You know, your life kind of comes back to you later, doesn't it? People blame you for those kinds of things. No, uh, he knew that that's, what he, that that's what he had done. The word to destroy means to sack, to ravage, to waste, to raise with a Z, R-A-Z-E, to just flatten or flat earth behind you. That's what this word means. You know what? That's what Satan desires. That's why Satan uses people like a Saul of Tarsus. He uses those persecutors of the church because Satan doesn't want people to hear the gospel, doesn't want them to be saved. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whom the God of this world, small g, and that is Satan, of course, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. He wants to blind their eyes. 2 Timothy 2.26, at the end of that chapter, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. He has you where he wants you. He doesn't want you hearing anything else. He'd rather destroy it, he'd rather persecute it, than have you hear the gospel. And yet, he always opposes, I think he always opposes, an evangelical doctrine. I use that word carefully. Evangel I'm not just speaking of evangelicalism, but I am. What I mean by that is anyone who preaches the gospel by faith. Not the gospel through a church, not the gospel through a religion, not the gospel by works, but anyone who who tells people they can get saved by faith, Satan is against it. Satan will persecute it, and he'll do everything he can to try to keep you or anyone else from hearing the gospel, including yourself, including your own conscience. Now, notice verse 14. He says, but I was very pro-religion. Don't, don't think of me as non-religious. Don't think of me that I didn't have my own church, my own religion. I did. So he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of the fathers. Now, unless you're, if you're just first joining us, we have taken time, even in an introductory message to this book, to explain this, that the Jewish people are God's people. He chose Abraham and promised Abraham to bless them. And he will one day. But Jewish people have to be saved by faith like everyone else. Old Testament, New Testament. It always has to be that way. And God gave them a way to live for 1,500 years. You do this, that is, keep the law. He gave, he gave you and me, for example, the local church. And he says, here's how you live, here's how you worship me. But are you saved by coming to church? Are you a Christian just because you come to this church? Uh, if you go stand in a garage, are you a car because you're standing in a garage? You know, you don't become a Christian just because you're here. 
Well, the, the Jews kind of, the same thing had happened to them. I'm a believer in God because I do these things. I do the sacrifices. I do the feast days. I do all of those things. Therefore, I'm right before God. It had, be, it had become legalism, Judaism, rather than a faith in God. Abraham was justified by faith, wasn't he? And that's how you become really a child of Abraham. So he says, I was very pro-religious. Judaism, traditions, ancestral traditions. The traditions of the father means ancestral traditions. Maybe you're saying, well, my mom and dad believe this, and I'm going to believe it. My grandma and grandpa believe this, and I'm going to believe it. All the way back to when my, my people got off uh, the ship on the, you know, in New York, I believe this. Is that what you're going to do? Believe it because somebody else did? Believe it because that's just your ancestral tradition? I profited in it. I was above my peers. I was better than anybody in this. Exceedingly zealous of all of these things. Amazing. And yet, Paul will say, beware, Colossians 2.8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, but not according to Christ. And even Jesus in Matthew 15, 6 said, Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. You keep this thinking that's the way you're going to be saved, and so the commandment of God for you to believe doesn't have any effect on you. So that's what Paul is saying here. That's the way I was. It's the way I, I was. I know, I know many of your testimonies here in this church, and I know some of you were saved out of religions that you practiced for a long time. It didn't save you. You didn't hear the gospel there. You did, it didn't change you until you came to hear the evangelical, that is the gospel-centered message of salvation by faith through grace. So he was pro-religion. Now, I'm going to put a footnote in here about the word tradition, okay? Because you know that there's a good use and a bad use of the word tradition, even in the New Testament. Sometimes it's described as tradition with a capital T or tradition with a small t. When Jesus, as I read here, or Paul, speaks about your traditions that are, you are following and it's leading you away from Christ, he's talking about traditions with a capital T. And there are a lot of religions, there are a lot of religions that call themselves Christian that are just traditional with a capital T. You've got to do those things, you've got to practice all of their things, and they don't necessarily come from the Bible, you just have to practice them uh, in order to be a good quote-unquote Christian. But at the same time, even the Word of God is called a tradition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And Paul says, you better follow the traditions that I've given to you. But what I'm saying is, we can have traditions with a small t. We can, we can do things that we've always done before because they're good things to do. One of them is have church on Sunday night and Wednesday night. <laughs> you know, we don't know exactly when they met, actually, we might find out that they had church every night. How, would you, how about if we changed our services to every night? Aren't you glad we have a tradition about Wednesday night? <laughs> but you know what? I've studied church history and gone to places like John Bunyan lived in the 1600s. I've been in the church that he preached in and read the minutes of the business meeting 
They met on Wednesday night for prayer meeting in the 1600s. William Carey in the 1700s, same thing. And wherever I go, I, I go to Spurgeon's Church in London when I go back over there, guess what they're doing on Wednesday night? They have a huge crowd of people on Wednesday night for prayer meeting and Bible study. Now, is that a tradition with a small t? Yes. Is it a good thing to do? Yes. As a matter of fact, wherever you go in this world now, if you go visit our missionaries and you're there on a Wednesday night, I guarantee you you're going to church because that's what they're doing everywhere in the world on Wednesday night. So there are just some things that, yeah, you can't say this is exactly the way they did it, but it's still a good thing. So just a footnote there. I know you really appreciated that. All right. But Mosaic Law had become a tradition with a capital T. Let's go to my third thought, and that is now he describes his conversion. So let me do this. He says in verse 15, but when it pleased God, footnote, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, he's saying it doesn't please God for you to come with your works. It doesn't please God for you to try to work your way into heaven. You have to come by faith if you're going to come to God at all. So when it pleased God, and notice these two things, he separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. I have here, you're known by God, and in a minute we'll talk about being taught by God. Two things separated me and called me. Now, Paul has a unique position here, you've got to understand, that God had always planned for this man to be an apostle, and he knew it when he was born. And you say, how did God know that? Because God is God. He knows the future, and he knows these things. So you have, for example, to Jeremiah, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God can do that with his prophets and his apostles if he wants to. Even of John the Baptist, the angel said to his father, Zacharias, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So there were these apostles and prophets that God had planned to use in these ways before they were born. Is that amazing to you? It shouldn't be. God knows the future. God knows these things, doesn't it? So let me apply it to you. How about you? I can say this confidently. God has known you since your conception. God knew you in your mother's womb and every one of us in our mother's womb. Psalm 139, 15 and 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written the days fashioned for me when there was yet none of them. So God saw you. God knew you. And what I would say to you is God wants you to be saved. God is calling you also. So secondly, Paul will say not only did he separate me from the womb, he called me by his grace. We read it in, in uh, uh, Acts chapter 9 when he was on his way to Damascus. He called him all right. He called him by his grace. So let me say to you, God is calling you as a sinner to come to him. God, all of us who are saved are the called of God. 
and you should know that. We, we need to be called. We need to be saved. Look at verse 6 of our chapter here. I marvel, he says to these people, you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you're turning away to a different gospel. Look at, all, at, at chapter 5 and verse 13. We were over there a minute ago, 513. But you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Do not use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. And, and would you do, if you can, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in the first few verses, Paul, he says, called to be an apostle. Okay, we know how Paul was called. Through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brothers, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And we could keep going in these verses. Uh, verse 9, for example, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And on and on he goes through this, this chapter. What I'm saying is God has known you since your conception. God died for you. God loved you and he gave his son for you. And he's going to call you by his grace to come to him you need to receive him. You need to say, as Paul says, you know, who are you, Lord? And then say, all right, what do you want me to do? He's calling you and you need to come. So he loves you and he calls you. What a relief it is then to find Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And I hope that you are the called according to his purpose. Well, lastly, he says that he was, he was taught by God also. So, Verse 16 says, again, which we've already covered, he revealed his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Then he says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. You, you think I got this from men. I didn't. Nor did I even go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That caught my eye. I had to do a little research on that, and I did because I've heard strange things about that, uh, about Arabia being here. Uh, and let me read you a couple things. Douglas Moo, in a new commentary, he's a good writer. He said, Arabia was more likely to be a political designation referring to the Nabataean kingdom, a Romanized nation whose capital was in Petra and whose influence extend, extended as far as Damascus to the north and way down to Sinai, in the peninsula to the south. Robert Gromacki said, this Arabia does not correspond to the area around Sinai or modern Saudi Arabia. Rather, it refers to the wilderness in the vicinity of Damascus. So even if he went a little ways out of town to the east, he was in Arabia. But Arabia goes from way up there to way down there. The reason I say this is there are some who have a strange idea that, that Paul went to Mount Sinai and received information from God like Moses did when he was on the mount. They don't have to believe that at all. Arabia, or Mount Sinai is way down there in the peninsula, and Damascus is just outside of Arabia too. In those days, that Nabataean kingdom was huge, is the point. Even John MacArthur says, Paul went away to the Nabataean Arabia. Although he does not identify the exact location, it seems likely he stayed very near to Damascus. Well, our point is what? God was teaching him. 
He's receiving information from God. Wouldn't you love to have been an apostle? Wouldn't you love to be a, a prophet that God just gives you this stuff? What did I say a few minutes ago? God's given us this stuff. He's given us this stuff in this book that he not only revealed, but he inspired and he kept it for you so that, so that you have it. Flesh and blood did not reveal it, but his spirit revealed it. So I say, now, in, in case you take this the wrong way, you do still need preachers, okay? You still, you still preach, and you still need teachers, and you need books, and you need to study to show yourself approved unto God. I'm not saying you don't need human help, but I'm also saying to us, folks, as a believer, as someone who's come to the Lord Jesus Christ, let God teach you. Read, read His Word. Ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten it to you. Ask Him to help you understand. Read things that help you understand. Listen to people that help you understand. Be taught yourself about your Christian life so that you're grounded and settled in the truth. You need that in that sense as well. Well, my question simply is this. Have you been converted? Have you, do you have a conversion experience? When you said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And you read in the Bible, it said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you said, okay, that's what I'll do. You came to him by faith, not by your works, and you believed on him. And now that you have done that, do you know him? And are you being taught by him? And are you going on in your Christian life to grow and be what God wants you to be? You've got one life. And when you get to the end of it, you can't say, oops, I should have done it that way. I should have surrendered to that. I should have done it. It's too late. God doesn't let you go back. You have the choice now. And I say wherever you are in life, make the choice now that you need to make and serve him that way. All right, I want you to stand with me, if you will, as we stand and think about the gospel, think about conversion, think about what happened to you or me when we got saved. And then let's ask ourselves if we know the Lord as Savior. Maybe you're listening to my voice on live stream. You don't know Christ as your Savior. I've explained to you how that happens. I pray that you will accept him as, uh, as your Savior today. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we've read the conversion of this great man, the Apostle Paul, and how you did it in his life, and how he gives praise and honor and glory to you. And then, Father, we've reflected on how that happened to us, how we came to Christ, how you loved us, you gave yourself for us, and you called us to yourself. And so, Father, I pray then that today uh, any that hear this gospel, whether by my voice or someone else, would be convicted of that sin and come to you as Savior, would cry out to you even now where they are, Oh, Lord, I want to be saved by grace. Save me from my sin. So, Father, I pray these things would be done. I pray that you would receive honor and glory for them. And thank you for what we've read in your word today. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing always an invitation song at the close of our service uh, so that we allow a few quiet minutes to let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. I'm always at the front during while we sing and also as our service is closed. So you do uh, what the Lord is leading you to do today as Gordon comes and leads us.